Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, brought to you by Build Brand You, a new podcast series from Verizon Media. I'm Hannah Blackiston. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Brittany will be speaking with MasterChef host Melissa Leong about production in lockdown. And they had to think quickly and they had to think about how to continue to deliver an amazing show that people love without losing the spirit of it. Diversity on Australian screens. Everyone is celebrated for their, their knowledge and their love of, of not only their own culture, but other the cultures of the world. And how Junior MasterChef will charm audiences. For the bulk of these kids' lives, MasterChef has been on their screens. But first, the week's topics. Coles debuts a new brand platform. Being independent in agency land. And The Bachelorette is back. But do audiences care? This week saw Coles deliver its new brand positioning, Value the Australian Way. The branding was rolled out across a multi-channel TVC, which focused on the power of family, friendship, and valuing the little things. The campaign, created by DDB, moved away from actors and celebrities, instead using regular Australians. Cole's CMO, Lisa Ronson, said the campaign was meant to reflect the long history of the supermarket chain and the needs and wants of Australians in 2020. Let's start off. Uh, Brittany, I know you have watched this commercial most recently. What did you think of it? I think it was nice. It wasn't revolutionary. It wasn't something that I felt very strongly about, but I also don't think that that's necessarily the purpose of it. It feels like we've focused on COVID, obviously, for the bulk of the year, We're now in October and things, you know, for a lot of the country are feeling a little bit more normal. Obviously, Melbourne is a different case again. But I think Cole's reminding people that it's here. It cares about, you know, families. It cares about regular people, as you said, although we did notice a little cameo from celebrity chef Curtis Stone, who's obviously linked to Cole's. I thought it was nice. Yeah, that kind of um, made me laugh, the little Curtis Stone cameo in there, just because it was such a focus on it's regular Australians, but then still, yeah, you've got to get your celebrity chef in there. Um, I mean, you can't have a Coles ad without Curtis Stone holding a slab of meat. So <laughs> they're staying true to the brand in that respect. <laughs> and Zoe, I feel like, and I strongly predict going into Christmas, we're going to see a lot more of this, but I feel like we're seeing a lot of these kind of authentic we're here for you but like think about the little things ads now even now that we've moved past the original wave of awful zoom ads do you like did anything about this surprise you no I don't think so I mean like Brittany said they haven't exactly reinvented the wheel here with this ad I think the message I took away from it is that you know coals with cheaper prices and having all of the products there for you takes the stress of grocery shopping or cooking out of the way so you can focus on this time with your family and friends. And I think that is a message that we will see a lot going into Christmas. And I think looking at this ad, I might eat my words here, but you can kind of 
imagine how the Coles Christmas ad will appear. Um, I think it's interesting to see them lean into brand again. I mean, when you think of Coles ads, you think a lot more about the specials, Curtis Stone popping up during MasterChef, uh, a lot of the product and what's in season kind of ads. I don't think the last, off the top of my head, the last real lean into brand that I can think of was Down Down, which was about 10 years ago. And thankfully, it's a very different tack than the Down Down ads were. I mean, the music in this new ad will not be as much of an earworm. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think investing in your brand, I mean, we know that that's been the advice from all of the marketing gurus out there is invest in your brand now because that will help you recover later. Not that Coles probably had too much to worry about in the grand scheme of things because of COVID, but particularly doing it in the lead into Christmas, I think that's incredibly important because that is the real hunger games of the supermarket marketing sphere. I think you're um, really right. This felt so much like it could have been a Christmas ad. It could have been an Easter ad. It could have been any sort of holiday ad. So I won't be surprised if we get a very similar vibe to this for Christmas. Um, Just to point out, interestingly, Lisa Ronson did mention Down Down in her uh, comments for the story. Um, We know providing value to our trusted Down Down and everyday low prices is more important today than it's ever been. So I don't know if we should... If we should rely on the fact we will never hear that song again, because I can see it rolling back out in about six more months. Um, But I do think this, as you said, compared to kind of what we've seen from Coles a lot lately and what we're kind of used to seeing from Coles, this was a bit, a little bit of a different tact, even though obviously not a very, you know, bold or uh, wildly different to other stuff we've seen from other brands. But I think it'll be interesting to see how they take this platform forward especially, as you said, gearing up to go into Christmas. Next up, Ben Lilly, Aidan Hepburn, and what it means to be independent in agency land. This week also saw Ben Lilly bring his agencies, which include McCann, The Red Republic, Smart, and Engine Room Productions, together under a new consolidated group called Hero. Lilly said the move was in response to demands from the market for a one-stop shop for clients. This is coming after Lilly bought McCann Australia from IPG in February, returning as its leader after two years away. And that sale also included the Red Republic and Lily's former agency, Smart. Since then, Lily has also acquired creative and content agency Red Engine, SCC, production company Engine Room Productions, and Brisbane agency, JSA Creative. Uh, Zoe, what do we think this means for the landscape? Because I thought, um, you know, Lily coming out and saying, this is what clients are demanding from us. This is what the market is demanding from us that we provide this kind of one unified step forward is quite interesting considering, you know, this is a year that we've seen quite a lot of businesses get on the pivot. Yes. I mean, first of all, I think it's important to address that this is probably a move that we all saw coming. I mean, Ben Lilly bought McCann from IPG, like you said earlier this year, but I don't think anyone's been 100% clear on what the business is actually called. We have been referring to it as McCann World Group Australia, but 
if you've bought this massive business and you're buying a number of other agencies, I think it's was only a matter of time until he came out with his own name for the agency group. Um, to your point, yes, I think it is fairly indicative of the state of the industry at the moment. I think, you know, marketers' budgets are going to be tighter than they ever have been before. And I think the last thing that a lot of marketers will want to do is deal with multiple client services people across a number of different agencies and then trying to blend all of these agencies together to work with one another. I think I think Lily's assessment is pretty fair in that clients are going to want this one-stop shop, like here is our brief, do everything for us and we'll just leave it with you. Um, and that was a big push in the release that, that announced Hero. I mean – also, to be clear, so Hero is technically the name of the tech platform that has brought all of the agencies together. So they all operate on the one PL. And it also streamlines the client services process so that clients have one touch point. Hero is also the name of the holding group in some respects. It's the Hero Corporation and most of Lily's agencies fall underneath it, but because of the way some of the recent acquisitions have come together, for example, Red Engine was the acquisition of its assets, not its entire business. Some of them technically don't fall under that. They're sort of assets of maybe some of the agencies that are within the Hero group, but that's all a bit complicated. I think it's a big move, but one that we also saw coming. I think as well when you, you know, start making such uh, strong business moves as we've seen Ben do this year, you kind of have to stamp your own brand on it at some point. You can't just keep acquiring things that have been owned by other people or things that, you know, have come from somewhere else and therefore have their own heritage and their own history. Brittany, I also wonder if we're going to start seeing this across other aspects of the industry. I'm wondering if we're maybe going to see Obviously, this has been the year of consolidation, the year of pivoting, which I think I've already said about four times this podcast. Um, If we're ever going to get to a point in the industry where we start seeing smaller brands that maybe don't add much in big holding groups closed, do you reckon this is a bit of a sign of things to come and it's going to start in the independence and then go wider from there? Well, I think the opportunity independents have at the moment is almost enforced by COVID, right? So I was chatting to Matt Nunn, that interview will be coming out in a few weeks, but earlier in the week, and and he was saying in terms of Nunn Media and the media agency landscape that this time is forcing marketers to consider, are they getting value out of their agencies? Are they getting value out of how they deal with those agencies? And is there an opportunity actually to find someone who will do it better or in a more streamlined way or in the same place or any of those things that kind of you and Zoe have already touched on. And I think that independents across the space are very aware of that and are very aware that this is actually a chance to kind of snap up possibly some pretty good business. You know, you've got in the media agency landscape, for instance, Simon Ryan, who's been very public facing with his new group that he's calling a holding group called Ryan Cap and then it's got you know a couple of agencies so far that sit underneath that you've had lots of people that have set up kind of independent consultancies or some version of an independent business 
possibly out of necessity and due to the, the market generally. Some of those are still going. Some of them, you know, have slowed down or stopped. We saw a few weeks ago the Media Smiths guys pause that venture for now and kind of move into CHE proximity and go back to an agency. So I think we're in this weird time at the moment where everything's kind of in flux and up in the air, but the indies that are doing it right are the indies that are kind of snapping stuff up for themselves like Ben Lilly is or who are eyeing some bigger pieces of work that they don't feel like are being serviced well enough by holding groups. Um, that's a good point, actually. I think, um, you know, it feels like or it's certainly felt like lately we've seen this really big trend towards people being going independent agencies kind of, you know, shedding some of the extra weight. But I, as you said, Britt, we've also seen, you know, some people who were previously independent move into agencies. I would go out on a limb and say that it's a lot safer currently to be inside a big agency than it is to be out on your own, especially if you're maybe not that well established. So yeah, while we have seen one side and it feels like a trend's emerging, we are also still seeing something on that other side as well. Yeah, and also, you know, Virginia Highland, we spoke about a few weeks ago on the Mumbrella cast, sold her agency to Havas and said that, in fact, that transaction was a sign that there was hope on the horizon for indies almost and that, you know, for indies slogging away and doing it really tough during COVID, especially for small indies that don't have that kind of scale, you know, I think she was a real advocate for you know, the benefits of being acquired by a holding company if, you know, it suits your circumstances. So, yeah, we've seen a lot happen in the space this year. I'm not sure if we've seen enough to bed down any kind of firm trend moving into next year and the ones to follow, but it's definitely, I think, a keep your eyes on this space type of a story. Also this week, Zoe, you spoke with former VML YNR CEO, co-CEO Aidan Hepburn about his new independent agency, Accelo. I think um, you've kind of, you've actually spoken to a couple of people in this space now about, you know, what agencies are looking at and, what, you know, what independent agencies are looking at specifically. What kind of vibe did you get from Aidan about what the market is asking for at the moment? Yeah, I think the key takeaway that I took from my chat with Aiden is that clients out there will be pushing for more nimble partners. And that was a point that he continually made throughout our chat is that uh, the thing about independence is that they can move a lot quicker than agencies within holding groups. There's a lot less red tape. There's a lot less hierarchy. You don't need to go to different levels for approval. If you want to do it, you can just do it and run with it. And it's quite interesting in respect of what happened with Ben Lilly this week, like planting the independent stamp on his business with Hero. But Ben Lilly's strategy has been to acquire agencies and build out these capabilities so that Hero can offer like a, cl- a service mix across the board of Adland. So he's been acquiring these agencies, whereas what Aiden was saying to me was that the thing that is different about them and what has been appealing about them to their clients is that they have built these capabilities from the inside out. So within the independent landscape, there is still so much difference there as well. Although that being said, something that uh, Aidan pointed out was that he thinks that now is a really great opportunity for super independent groups, which are 
either your independent group of agencies like Bastion or Hero or groups of agencies that come together through like a mutual agreement, it's a really great opportunity for those to come alive because clients will be looking for all of those functions but with the quick and nimble capacity that independents offer. And I also think, I mean, Excello is investing in CRM and customer lifetime value. And again, while we see marketing budgets remain really tight, I think the focus for marketers will be on return and investment. And for them in particular, I'm sure that is going to be very appealing to clients as well. Yeah, I definitely think that's the one thing we can point to is that, and we've heard that from agency side, we've heard that from media side, we've heard that from everyone that return on investment is more important now than it ever has been. So whether we start seeing a trend to more towards more independence, whether we start seeing a trend towards more full service, I think the big underlying factor will just be whatever the only people who are going to kind of make it through this stronger than they came into it are going to be the people who are able to convince you know the people they're doing business with that they can provide better ROI than anybody else in the area I suppose. Next up how did two bachelorettes fare for 10? Build Brand You is the podcast which helps you learn all the soft skills you need to flourish at work no matter what industry you're in. Episode one launches this week featuring Ariana Huffington, who explains why she's an advocate of no brilliant jerks policy and how you can start to tackle that burnout we're all feeling at the moment. Subscribe to Verizon Media's Build Brand You on your favorite podcast platform. The Bachelorette came back this week for its sixth season, at this time with two leading ladies in sisters Ellie and Becky Miles. Brittany, the series premiered to 628,000 Metro viewers, which is the lowest ever figure for a premiere of The Bachelorette, even lower than Ali Ochen's season, which was the previous record holder. You spoke with EP Hilary Innes, who said this season may rival the best season the show has ever had, which is Sophie Monk's season. The premiere of that one sat in the 900,000s. How do you think 10 are feeling about this result? Look, I don't think that 10 would say that they're disappointed with the result. And I think Hilary herself acknowledged that you know, you never know until the audience receives it. You can predict all you like and you can hope that the numbers are better year on year, but you've just got to wait and see. I think coming off the back of Lockie's season of The Bachelor always impacts how people are feeling about The Bachelorette. I don't, and this is, you know, complete speculation, but I think Lockie in the end being seen as kind of a villain, saying I love you to two different women feeling like he was maybe a bit gameplay about the process. I don't think that that left his season with the sorts of feelings that we've had around, you know, seasons previously where you really do feel happy for the for the happy couple at the end. So, look, I think we'll see how it goes. When I was comparing the results from various seasons in the piece that I wrote up after my chat with Hillary, I was really interested in the finales and those final moments and comparing those because you know that you're always going to get the biggest audience that you that you can based off of that. So 
I'll be interested to see if it gains momentum, if it stays steady, if it drops off. We saw, you know, Bachelor in Paradise, for example, drop off quite quickly. That always performs lower than The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. But yeah, look, I think it'll be interesting and it's a new format for them. I mean, it's a world first to have two sisters in those positions. It's a Australian first to have a double lead situation in this country. So look, give it time, I reckon, give it time. And boy, did we know that it was two sisters as the lead bachelorettes in the first episode. I watched it and they said, we're sisters and we're both looking for love, I reckon, two dozen times. Like it was, I think the first episode did fall foul a little bit to just that repetition and also Osha having to explain how the season's going to work and drop in and out and tell you what's going on because I think a few people were a little bit confused, viewers and contestants as well. Um, Yeah, I think... If we continue to see The Bachelorette to decline, I don't know, how how can you axe The Bachelorette but keep The Bachelor running? Like, is that bad optics, do you think? I don't know, actually, and I feel like that's something I've thought about for a little while because, you know, traditionally The Bachelorette doesn't do as well as The Bachelor, but also, you know, traditionally Bachelor in Paradise does worse than both of them. So if surely if one of them's going to get the axe, it's going to be Bachelor in Paradise. Also, for a while now we've been saying that they're going to struggle to continue finding people to put on Bachelor in Paradise when we kind of just see the same five people trotted out. I think um, in response to what you were saying, Zoe, it is really hard to come in with a new idea. You do have to do so much legwork. It's like when you start watching a new TV show and there's like, you know, several episodes where they've got to set up the premise and you're like, oh, this is exhausting. So I feel sorry for 10 on that front. But in response to uh, your thoughts, Britt, on Lockie's turn as The Bachelor, I've just had a quick look because I did have a sneaking suspicion. And after um, Honey Badger, the next Bachelorette was Ali, and she did have the worst rating season. And obviously, if we all remember back, Honey Badger notoriously walked away at the end without picking anybody and everybody basically screamed love is dead at the TV. So I wonder if there's something in that. I know Ali wasn't necessarily a super popular choice for the role either. So, you know, there's probably a couple of different things at play there, but I do wonder if an unsuccessful season of the bachelor leads to an unsuccessful season of the bachelorette. Um, But yeah, I don't, in response to your query, Zoe, I don't know that we, should expect them to ever drop The Bachelorette, even though it does rate worse than The Bachelor. I think especially at the moment, 10 don't really have anything else on the slate that could replace it. And I also think, and this is what 10 pointed to uh, with the premiere, their live streaming is higher than it's ever been. By the end of the season, I'm sure we're going to see BVOD numbers higher than they've ever been whether that's just because more people are watching stuff on BVOD now as opposed to this being a really popular season. But I think we know media companies are really trying to build those BVOD libraries. They're really trying to give people content that's bingeable. And I think particularly these kind of romance-based reality shows speak so well to that. I think as well it's a little bit hard to directly compare The Bachelorette to The Bachelor simply because of the discrepancy in season numbers. If you think about how The Bachelorette's only in its sixth season, two of those have performed incredibly well, which is Sophie Monk and then Sam Frost. And I think that they were trying 
to get a little bit of that back this season with Ellie because she is really likable. She did, you know, perform quite well in terms of likability and audience response on Matt Agnew's season. And then the added interest of, you know, chucking your sister on, having the both of them, you know, be part of it. So I, I totally get the impetus of, of this casting and why they think that it could be more Sam Frost and Sophie Monk-esque because those two were also really likable. Obviously, Sophie wasn't coming off the back of having been on a Bachelor season, but she already had a personality. So, yeah, I, I think you're right that it's a compliment to The Bachelor, but it really needs The Bachelor to do well and carry that momentum into the next week. Um, it's also kind of worth noting what the landscape looks like at the moment. So the block is currently airing and doing just as well as it's done any other year. The block seems fairly untouchable at this point. Um, we've obviously just seen Seven and Plate of Origin, which didn't do super well for the network. But it's been a bit of a tough year in terms of, you know, obviously we've had all the production issues of this year. We've had a lot of shows kind of not able to uh, actually make it through to the production slate. But we've also seen, you know, MasterChef have the best year it's had in a really long time. So I think this year has been somewhat unpredictable and you probably couldn't have very happily hung your hat on a figure before, you know, the actual premiere. I think I wouldn't be surprised if what we do see is perhaps some sort of revamp on the horizon. I don't know what that would look like. Obviously, this season they've tried to kind of throw in a bit more interest, as you said, Britt, but I wouldn't be surprised if maybe next season we either see them completely return back to basics and give us an unknown bachelorette or maybe overhaul it in some other way. But, yeah, I do wonder how much longer it can continue being kind of second fiddle to The Bachelor. Up next, Brittany speaks with MasterChef judge Melissa Leong. I'm now joined by MasterChef judge Melissa Leong. Welcome to the Mumbrella cast, Melissa. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start with the obvious place, MasterChef. You stepped into a very well-established franchise as part of a completely new hosting lineup. Was there pressure associated with that? You know, I get asked that question a lot and I would say not really. I know that that's not the question, that's not the answer that people want to hear, but we were asked to be ourselves. We were approached knowing that we each bring a set of, um, of, of knowledge and, and, a, and our personalities and, and experiences with us. And you can only work with what you have. So we're not, we, we weren't asked to replicate the success of something else, but we were just encouraged to be who we are. So the first season with you, Jock Zonfrillo and Andy Allen as hosts blew expectations out of the water in terms of the response and the ratings as part of that response. Following on from what you just said about, you know, there wasn't pressure because you were expected to be yourself, mm. were your expectations blown out of the water? How did the response match up with what you hoped for? You could never hope for this kind of success we achieved this year. I mean, we feel so lucky to have had the audiences resonate so well with 
you know, with our job and what we did. And uh, a huge part of that was, I think, the the format of the show for the year. It allowed people to hold on to something familiar with all of their, you know, their familiar back to win beloved people from the MasterChef universe while getting to know us. And I think that that's just genius on behalf of Endemol Shine to create a format um, that allowed that to happen. But um, no, I mean, you know, you have the highest of hopes that you're not going to flame out, but at the same time, um, you know, what what happens and, and what you meet when you do the job is, is just, it's life. So whatever would have happened, we would have just rolled on with that. But fortunately, we are in the wonderful position where uh, we have a lot of people loving what we do and hopefully we get to continue to do that for a little bit longer. Mm. In some ways, it kind of felt like the spirit or the excitement of MasterChef season one again. So there was curiosity about how you guys would do as hosts and therefore what the show would be like. But (laughs) it felt like it was bigger than that and it was also connected to the moment of time that we're in. So I remember when it aired, we were right in the middle of lockdown. Many of us had rediscovered cooking at home. Do you think that the response was tied to that, that people around the country in the middle of a pandemic in this completely unforeseen set of circumstances were spending more time in their kitchens and were really kind of connected with with cooking. It's synchronicity, isn't it? You know, we could never have imagined the year we've all had and um, dealing with it in each in our own ways and we're all sort of approaching the, the ups and the downs and the limitations of what the pandemic has has dictated to us. And, yes, a part of that has been that we've been forced to slow down. A lot of people have been dealing with the pandemic by learning or relearning how to cook or remembering their love of food and along comes a show where in the heart of its DNA it is about a love of food, a deep and unabiding love of food. And um, to really connect those things together is just one of those one of those moments in in time that you could never script and you could never plan for it. It just is what it is. And I'm a big believer in um, the right time and the place for everything. And I think that this is definitely one of those times. Mm. MasterChef has also been championed across the years for its casting diversity, but it felt like that conversation was reignited this year and and the cast was really loved. Mm. How important was that kind of diversity when you signed on to be part of the show? Diversity, you're right, has always been a huge part of MasterChef Australia. If you look at the contestants, you look at um, the the guest judges, everyone is celebrated for their their knowledge and their love of, of not only their own culture but other the cultures of the world. And I think that that's one thing that's so wonderful about food is that it connects all of us and it's a way of learning each other's cultures and each other's backgrounds in, in a really joyful way. And because that is at the heart of MasterChef, I think that's what has allowed for its enduring success in terms of you know diversity choices and my my um my decision to jump onto the show I think as a freelancer of over a decade you're offered a job and if it's the right job for you and it's a job that you want to do then you're doing it because of your capability you're doing it because of what you think you might be able to contribute to the conversation. While I am deeply aware of how uh, the conversation 
on the conversations on diversity and inclusivity and representation have become part of my place in Australian media at present. That is not why I joined per se. I don't think you're thinking about those things. I think you're thinking about life on a much more granular level than that. You filmed part of the season in lockdown going back to COVID-19 for a moment and it was one of the first shows. (laughs) (laughs) It was one of the first shows where we saw the impact of restrictions on sets play out. What did filming look like? Do you think it impacted the final product and how was that experience? Well, you can see what filming looked like. It was, you know, very different. And a big, a big part of the show is the interpersonal relationships between people and how they, how they play out. And it is really tough when people are having an emotional time. At least it is for me. When I see someone having a hard time, um, my instinct is to go and hug them or to go and just, you know, be in their space and, and, you know, offer whatever sort of support I can give. And when you can't do that, that's that's a really tough thing. But I suppose at the end of the day, we needed to use uh, our words and, and to continue to use our hearts to communicate how we feel. Um, but it is, it's a palpable difference. You can see all of, this, all of the social distancing in play, the way that challenges are set up so there are less people in the kitchen. There are so many different elements to, to what it took and it is testament to the fact that Endemol are some of the best in the biz and, and they had to think quickly and they had to think about how to continue to deliver an amazing show that people love without losing the spirit of it um, while complying with obviously all of the restrictions in place. I think also people need to remember that a food show, as with everybody in hospitality, um, food food health and safety is always paramount. It's always something that's at the top of everyone's consideration uh, in this year or any other years. So from a food hygiene point of view, not a whole lot had to change in that regard. It was just more about that social distancing and the way that we um, we navigate each other in, in an interpersonal way. And I think we did... I think we did a good job in terms of being able to express what we were all experiencing this year. You know, the fact that you um, you can't just go down the street, have a coffee with your friend, and, and have a hug if they've had a bad day. That sucks. Yeah, totally. Now that your first season is out of the way, what are you excited about for future seasons of MasterChef? I'm excited about Junior um, coming onto the air very soon, that's for sure. It's been um, a wonderful contrast in many ways, but a, a wonderful continuation of what I've been learning on MasterChef as well. So they brought so much joy and so much fearlessness to the kitchen. I think that it's reminded us as adults with baggage you know I think you don't become an adult without taking on some level of baggage Um, it reminded us to to be joyful and to be hopeful about things and I think that I mean I know that that's something that we all took away from being on set with those extraordinary juniors and I, I really hope that it's something that that resonates with audiences as well you know to remember to look uh look forward and to be hopeful for things I think we all need that this year yeah. So Junior MasterChef begins this weekend. What can we expect from the season? What are you most excited for us oh, to see? You know, I knew they were going to be good cooks, but my goodness, these kids can cook. <laughs> and uh, I don't think it's 
at all surprising on reflection because the the age group is 10 to 14. That means that for the bulk of these kids' lives, MasterChef has been on their screens. And we have now grown up in uh, over a decade of this country loving food in a in a huge way. You know, growing up in Australia as I did in the the eighties and the nineties, um, it was all about sport, and I, I love that. But um, the fact that it's augmented into so many other facets, and one of them is a really huge obsession with food um, that impacts on on people and that impacts on the younger generations who have been watching the show since day dot and so for them to walk onto the set and to be absolutely blown away by just being there let alone when you start setting challenges and they just rise to the occasion every single time it was just a fun uh, you know, a, a fun thing to shoot and um, I think it just went so quickly for all of us because every day was just literally rolling on the floor of, <laughs> with laughter and, um, you know, again, I think we need to find reasons to laugh and to have joy at the moment. Do you have any hopes around how or rate, especially compared <laughs> to the season we've just had of MasterChef? It's a question I have to ask. <laughs> Look, obviously you hope that it resonates with people the same way that it has the, um, you know, the, the main season of the show. So, again, we approached we approached Junior with the same um, attitude of, of, that we did with, um, with the main season, which was to be ourselves, to have fun, to bring all of the articulation experience and technical prowess that we possess in each of us to the table and um, and to be real about it. I think what's resonated most is that um, we are all unapologetically ourselves for better or for worse and people can relate to that. We aren't always smiling and happy and perfect. We have bad days. We feel when other people feel. Uh, all of those things are, are wonderful parts of being human and we are very uh, unafraid to express that in in this show and and that that's no different with junior as well so for me again the hero of masterchef is always the food it's not it's not really anything other than just it's the love of food so i think when you see these kids and they are so smart wise clever freaking cute like <laughs> just it's um it's a it's a fun thing to watch and I really hope that people love it as much as we've loved making it. I can't wait to watch it. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And that's it for this week. But before we go, Mumbrella 360 Reconnected is just around the corner. From the highly anticipated fireside chat with Sir Martin Sorrell to leading voices from Magnite, Junkie Media and McDonald's. We've already unveiled 45 incredible speakers from Umbrella 360 Reconnected and they're set to answer the industry's most burning questions. Book your tickets now from $69 and join your peers for four jam-packed virtual days of learning, inspiration and networking on November 17th to 20th. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella360 to book your tickets. And keep your eyes out for a special episode of the Mumbrella cast, which will drop on Tuesday next week. In it, Mumbrella's founder, Tim Burrows, chats to Sir Martin Sorrell about S4 Capital, WPP, and David Ogilvie. 
that's it for this week, though. Thank you for joining me, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.